this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. You are listening to a special interview edition of The Playlist Podcast. I'm your host and podcast editor over at The Playlist, Eric McClanahan, and on this episode, I'm joined by director Nicholas Steiner for a chat about his new film, Above and Below, opening this Friday in limited release and expanding wider in the following months. Above and Below is easily one of the best and most cinematic documentaries to come out this year so far, the rare nonfiction film that demands to be seen on a big screen with a proper sound system. It follows five characters, credited only by their first names, April, Dave, Cindy, Rick, and The Godfather. They're loosely connected by their voluntary off-the-grid lifestyles that the film weaves together beautifully. Here's a clip from the trailer. Nobody, nobody comes through here. So how big's the universe? Looks pretty big to me. So where are you located? I really want to go to Mars. I want to see as much as I can see, even if it is risking my life. You have to respect the person's place where they consider a home, whether it be a hole or a mansion. I guess for now I consider this a home. Above and Below is a small release from indie distributor Oscilloscope Laboratories, but one that I highly recommend to any movie fan. So if it comes to your city, give it a shot. In the following interview, I talk with Nicholas, a young Swiss-born filmmaker, about constructing beautiful shots for a nonfiction work, the power of good sound design, and much more. So I'll drop you into our chat, where I let off asking him why fictional narrative cinema has inspired him more than documentaries. Well, first of all, I, I have to admit, and I'm sorry, I have to admit this to all film geeks and film lovers now, <laughs> that I'm a very bad fa- film u- viewer. I haven't seen that many films yet, how probably many of you have seen before. I only started um, working with films like a couple years ago, maybe eight, nine years ago. So when I grew up in the Swiss mountains, you know, there was, first of all, there was no cinema close by. Second of all, the nature and the sun was just too nice all the time to kind of be inside somewhere and watch um, Star Wars or something, which of <laughs> course still happened. But, you know, so I, I'm not the biggest um, um, film viewer or film goer so far, but that changed a little bit as when I went to film school and when I started to get more interested. But you're right. I think for me, the bigger influences came somehow from fiction movies and I can't really describe why, maybe because in my school, I saw too many documentaries that I had to watch that I was kind of forced to watch that kind of made me think why even watch this because (laughs) some of them were just not as interesting and some of them were just not, I didn't know why there was a movie about it. Why didn't they do a radio show or wrote a, a newspaper article about it because there was no difference. So I'm not saying that all of that is bad, but as a matter of fact, I realized for myself that I might get more inspiration from actually maybe well-handcrafted films or formalistic films that inspire me more. And so one of the biggest steps for me was when I went to Denmark for a year and I got very influenced by a lot of Scandinavian cinema, like the humor but also the style 
um, the stories are told and also their sometimes their braveness I would say to try out stuff and that kind of worked into my subconsciousness and then I mean to mention a couple documentary filmmakers I think Austria and also Switzerland somehow has since a, a long time has a long history in documentary filmmaking and there's like guys like uh, Ulrich Seidel or mm. Mikkel Glavocker that unfortunately died um, uh, making his last film uh, two years ago I mean, those guys, they definitely had some influence uh, on me when I was in film school and watching their films. Yeah, Ulrich Seidel, uh, I I recently, uh, well, not recently, in the last six months, I saw In the Basement, his documentary, uh, that, and then he, of course, did the Paradise Trilogy. It's that filmmaker you're referring to, yes? Yes, it was that filmmaker. I mean, I'm... I'm not saying that I completely agree with him with his last film, <laughs> The Basement, uh, but I think it was very much his early stuff when he was quite young and also out of film school and in film school, what he did there, you know. I think that kind of spirit and also a little bit the punk attitude that he had um, helped a lot to kind of fight for this vision that I had because uh, it was a long process too and not all the time everyone was believing in it. So. Um, I think it's it's not only a formalistic choice or something. It's also about the attitude behind and uh, behind the filmmaker, but also its topic and themes, and also its way of telling a story that I I, I, I took out probably from some movies. But I can't refer to one movie or one director that I I would say, oh, this guy is my is my god because I mean. When you see above and below, some parts in the desert might, you know, Dave digging a hole might remind, or some people told me it reminded them of the Coen brothers uh, mm. saying like, oh, brother, no, another, oh, brother, where are the other film that was shot in Marfa? Um, no which Country was, for Old Men. No Country for Old Men or something like that. And then, of course, a European filmmaker would rather tell me, oh, didn't Wenders also shoot once a <laughs> film in the desert, Paris, Texas? And I've maybe have seen those films at some point and they probably had some influence on me. That's the same thing if you went, go through a photo book, but I can't refer to one director or one movie that I, I'm trying to uh, refer to or homage or copy. But beyond a movie that you're, tr- any that you're trying to refer to within Above and Below, what what was, do you, you must have a, a movie that you saw, you know, eight or nine years ago when you started to get into, when cinema or filmmaking became a reality for you. Was there just like one movie that really like locked it in for you where you're like, I need to do something with this medium? Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, my first experience in cinema was traumatic. I was a a, a young teenager or still kind of a kid. And finally, my dad told me, yeah, we're going to the cinema. So we drove out 30 minutes to go to the cinema and we went to watch The Lion King, (laughs) Disney's Lion King, which was terrible in a sense because I sit in, my sister was there too, and we watched 12 minutes or something and then, or I don't know how many minutes, and then this one dramatic scene comes where... Uh, I think he lo- loses his mother or something. He loses his and father, I, yeah, yeah. Or he loses his father. And I'm like starting to cry. And, <laughs> and my dad my dad is like snoring. He sleeps like <laughs> hardcore. So that was my first cinema experience. And it was very traumatic. You know, I, I, I felt like I've never want to go to the cinema again because it touched me so emotionally that I couldn't handle and nobody was there to hold me. Um, so that was the first thing. And then I kind of quit cinema for a while. And then I started again. And I think... If if you really ask me like straight out, there's like two or three movies that I I would mention now that kind of changed my way of thinking or also made me think, oh, this is cool. I maybe want to do something like that on my own at some point. It was, uh, for example, one of the first works of 
if not the first one, of Christopher Nolan. His film was called Following. Yes. And it also premiered at Rotterdam at that point. So Rotterdam already became, after watching that movie, became a kind of a word for me. And it was amazing that with Above and Below, I could premiere there now. So I'm kind of, I was really happy about that. But so Following, for example, was an interesting film for me. Uh, and then a couple of old uh, uh, Swiss documentaries, one from a filmmaker called Peter Nestler, where he documented young kids that go to school but have to work like really hard to make it on their school way because it's so snowy and icy and what he did is he let them write about their their way to school and then he let them read that and you see the images which was really interesting because you see the images the kid is reading and the way it was read it was so funny because it was like eight-year-old kids reading in a really strange swiss german style so those kind of movies inspired me. And then again, like the Scandinavian cinema, even people who are almost the same age like me, I was really admiring at that point, you know, like uh, Dagur Kari who did Noi Albinoi, but also Reykjavik 101 from Iceland, mm-hmm. um, kind of modern movies that, that I was like, whoa, this is this is powerful, you know, this this is fun. And uh, yeah, so different different inspirations from different countries, but definitely a lot of European stuff, I guess. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, your previous uh, documentary feature, Battle of Battle of the Queens, because beyond that, you've got about five other shorts credited. But I'd love to know more about Battle of the Queens. Yeah, I mean, Battle of the Queens is uh, it's not I think it's not considered a long feature because it's 70 minutes. And so I think in North America, it had to be like 78 to be a long feature or in <laughs> Germany. I, I don't remember. So it's kind of a mid length movie. And that was in my third year of school. And it's a black and white movie about Swiss cows, about a tradition from Swiss cows that are battling against each other. And uh, I tried to, to do kind of a ballet out of it, like that cows that are dancing at the end of the day. And it was also a lot about the relationship between uh, humans and animals, in this case, breeders and their, their, their cows, which are treated like queens, and yet their fight fights are quite um, raw, which means there's no blood and nobody gets killed, but it's quite wild. So we shot it at that point, you know, which was seven years ago, and we premiered in Berlin. It was kind of a new thing that a documentary would be shot on a Red One camera, and then we had a high-speed camera that we sent to South Africa to the World Championship after soccer, and we had, you know, you saw that snore and that dirt coming out of those cows, like mixed with a, a score that we, you know, tried to do stuff. And I started off with like doing an experimental black and white movie about cows in Switzerland, but then it became like a uh, a movie that came into cinemas in Switzerland, which was not like a huge success, but it was fun and it was like my first experience. And based, it came into cinema together with a short movie called It's Me Helmut, mm. which is a 12-minute short um, shot on on one 16-millimeter roll. So I had three takes with like 60 or 70 people from my town, and that short kind of opened my doors because even above and below is partly financed buy that short because through winning some awards and getting some reference money and points I could finance now above and below which is six years after which uh, was a crazy story but that's can, how you can see how powerful and how a short film can help sometimes you know to yeah. get other stuff rolling yeah that's actually that's so refreshing to hear Nicholas because like I often I have friends that are filmmakers that have put shorts out there and I know you know I've read plenty about 
filmmakers who make shorts and it, you know, 95% of the time, it seems like they don't really lead to anything, but to hear that it's possible that something led from this to that is really, that's really great to hear. And I think that also leads to the next question of, uh, above and below the film at hand, the one we're here to talk about, like this was also, um, this was your graduation film. If I'm not, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So I did the short It's Me Helmet in my second year, Battle of the Queens in my third year. And then after my third year, I took a year off because I had a Fulbright scholarship at San Francisco Art Institute for a year. And that's where I started pretty much this project. And then I went back to Germany and pitched my school that project as my graduation film, which at the beginning, they were not so happy about it because, yeah, shooting in the States, you know, taking the camera from there and stuff. So, but yeah, it became my graduation project. But of course, that one took me longer than a normal graduation project, I guess, because only the editing, for example, took us like 11 months mm. um, with a little ups and downs. We had a, a couple of troubles, like also uh, team-wise, like the, the father of my editor was dying uh, at that point, which was very hard for us. And then we got kicked out a couple of times of different editing suites because, of course, like editing 11 months in the school is also not that that easy. And yeah, it was a huge, huge um, uh, learning experience. And uh, I'm very happy for it. And it's crazy now, you know, two years after we were almost there to give up, I'm talking to you now. Uh, and the movie starting on Friday in theaters in US. I mean, I'm probably one of the happiest guys right now concerning that movie stuff. I mean, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. I'm really happy about it and very proud and very excited. As you should be. I, I, is it, I mean, I, I might sound naive. Is it common for students of any film school to like actually have a, you know, something you make in school or during your time in school to actually. I mean, it just doesn't seem that common to lead to actual, you know, filmic distribution and, you know, beyond film festivals. Is that common from your experience? I'm not sure because, I mean, I don't know other schools that well as I do mine. And I could say that I would say Germany and I went to Germany because Switzerland has some film schools, too, but more like art schools with film departments. And Germany has like five official state film schools, you know, like probably in the States, NYU or, you know, schools that are kind of state funded and legit in a way. And you can apply and you have to apply already as director while in Switzerland in the art school, you apply as a film major and then you learn everything first. So I think those schools are all, I mean, if you want to do something out of it, then you can easily do it because you have four or five years time and they pretty much give you equipment and stuff. You just have to take advantage of it. And they told me clearly at the beginning, we were eight directors in my class. Okay, in 10 years, one of you is going to live his dream and the other seven, one of you is going to do commercials and the other six are going to quit the business. So it was a very clear statement and the first day of my school. And that kind of goes through now, you know, not everyone can probably say that. And But for me, it was really building up those bricks. So when I started with that It's Me Helmet short that was shown in Locarno, that kind of opened me the whole festival uh, career and also showed me how it can work. And then I built up with Battle of the Queens by not doing exactly the same, by doing a complete different film and then trying out some different stuff. And so it was kind of a build-up. So for us, the 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 expectations were a little higher, but we never thought, of course, that we would go to this point. And I think it's maybe also not the normal way. I can say that other films in my school, uh, fiction, they do fiction features sometimes, one or two maybe every second year. I'm not sure exactly about the success, like... 
probably not so much international, but German-wide. For example, there was one uh, graduation film this year in the main competition, Berlinale, which was pretty big. But I don't know what's going to happen with that film out of Germany. I would say for us as a documentary graduation from that school, I'm hoping I'm saying nothing wrong, but in those 25 years, I think we're probably the first one um, doing a theatrical release in, in the U.S. and being touring like uh, through this year with the whole film. So I'm I'm very happy about that. Yeah, congratulations, man. Of course, that's it's super exciting. The, the subjects of this movie, you know, you've got you've got five subjects. One, one is a couple, so essentially four stories that we're following in Above and Below. You've got Lalo, April, Dave, and Rick and Cindy. Can you talk about? How, how you got to beyond just the idea for where like how to connect these stories and to make one coherent sort of thematically connected movie which you did out of their stories how did you meet them and like how did you kind of convince them to be a part of your movie uh i'd love to know so i started the project when i was in san francisco at the art institute by doing a photo series about ghost towns and they really inspired me because they they looked dead but they were still so alive and so I immediately got really attracted by desert areas because I've never been that much in the desert before. <clears throat> Maybe because I'm I grew up in the Swiss mountains and on one one on the first side visually it's so different, but then when you look a second time, you know it's in both surroundings it's very raw and very archaic and kind of hard to survive sometimes. So that's something that I I was really interested in. So I I pretty much started to look so who is living in the desert and because I was in the area California Nevada that that was kind of obvious that I looked into those places. Then I came across three words in American history books and photo books that I kind of came across them all the time and for me they were a perfect um, kind of significant words for looking a little bit into the future, the now and the past. And those, those were cowboys, ghosts, and aliens. And so I pretty much went into the desert to look for cowboys, ghosts, and aliens. <laughs> and, and how I did this was uh, I found a, there were three, three ways of researching. One way was the classical documentary way, I would say, where I found an image of an astronaut uh, and there was a garden hoe in that image. And I was like, wait a second. First of all, we're not on Mars. Second, this is a little weird, which totally makes sense to me because I love that kind of humor. And then I was researching, so, okay, who are those guys? Where are they based? Oh, okay, James Cameron is funding uh, with other people this kind of Mars Desert Research Station, Mars Society. So I got involved with them. But that was more like a classical approach of, you know, internet research, calling, going to meet them and then kind of going step by step down there till I met April and knew that she's going to be part of this whole thing. And then the, the second one is I went to Las Vegas for the first time because of course if you're in San Francisco for a year as a Swiss dude everyone tells you oh you have to go to Vegas. Yeah. I went there and I was completely shocked. I was like completely overwhelmed with my senses because uh, a good friend of mine told me yeah it's like American steroids. You know I was my nose, my ears, my eyes were completely overwhelmed. I couldn't handle it. So one street off the strip I saw a guy in a onesie pyjama coming out with a chessboard and I was like, wait a second, is this a show? And then I started talking to him and then I figured out, oh no, this is a whole society under the city of Vegas. And I got in contact with a, a, a journalist and a social worker that worked down there. They told me how the, the system works and then I spent a lot of time um, down there like just walking around, getting to know the surroundings, getting to know some of the people. Uh, 
tried to look not like a drug dealer because I was chased <laughs> by the police, but still looked like a drug dealer. And um, so that's that's another way of getting close to them. And it took me a while till I finally ended up with Rick and Cindy, and especially Lalo, because nobody really wanted to talk to Lalo. And he, yeah, he turned out to be one of my most fascinating people in my life that I ever met. And then the the third one, or the th- in the third world, like uh, uh, in the desert, Dave, that's kind of the, the Christmas present of documentary filmmaking because you go out into the desert, you know that you're looking for someone or something, but you don't know yet how she or he is going to look like. So I was I was finding a, a hot spring because somebody told me I want to take a bath and then it's 10 p.m. and this guy comes across with a bike and he's just riding a bike in the middle of the desert. <laughs> so, of course, we had to stop and then... Uh, the production manager at that time, she was already with me for research and helped me out. And she was like, oh, we got to go on because he's a serial killer. And I was like, no, 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 <laughs> playing the little knife, Swiss dude. No, no, we have to talk to him. And then he showed me, or he told me that he's a bunker. He has a drum set in there. And because I'm a drummer myself, there was an immediate connection. Mm-hmm. And that was in June. And then he asked me, yeah, I can help you with your graduation film. So, or graduation, when are you coming back? And I had no idea in June if that film is ever going to get financed, if my school is going to allow it. And then I just made up a date. I said, 13th of October, I will be back. And that's what I did. 13th of October, of October, I went back there with three of my best buddies. And, you know, he came out of the bunker crying, saying like, it's, it's so nice that you guys came back. And I think that was also an immediate kind of... Um, how do you say like he was immediately trusting me because I was not fooling him because nobody else probably would say I come back would ever come back you know right right. it's a a lot about being patient and spending time with those people um, getting to know them and it's also I mean I know it sounds very simple and stupid but it's kind of what you give is what you kind of get as well and you become a family member which is a very dangerous part in the documentary filmmaking oh interesting yeah so uh, this this film you've said, and I would wholeheartedly agree, as a documentary, which is rare even today, this one is meant for the big screen. It's meant for the theatrical experience. Um, can you talk about why, like, that was sort of your goal all along with this film. Is that is that true? That's absolutely true, because I knew... They sometimes tell you, like, oh, when you're in school, you're protected. You should experiment. You should do everything that, you know, outside of the box you can't do anymore because financiers and stuff will tell you you can't do that. And so, of course, I knew, I hope it's not going to be my last chance. I hope I'm going to continue filmmaking like this. But for me, that's why it's filmmaking. I really wanted to use the big screen and every box that is there. And I really wanted to create this experience. And from the beginning on to all my crew member who were all students as well, I kind of tried to push each one to its borders and maybe sometimes even abroad, which is also okay. But, but you know, from composing to sound design, our own, um, how do you say, our own levels or standards that we wanted to reach were like really high. And uh, I worked with the same team that I worked on Battle of the Queens, which which was good because we already knew each other. We know the strength and the weakness about each other. And that's that's very important. And that's the only way how to make a cinematic experience somehow possible. Also by deciding things like which camera are we going to use. You know, we had very low lighting. There was only candlelight sometimes in the tunnels. And four years ago, there were not that many ways to go. Either 35 millimeter, which was too expensive uh, for a student project, or Ari Alexa, which at that point in Europe, only fiction and commercial movies has been shot on. 
or some kind of 5D stuff, which we weren't really interesting because we liked that heavy stuff on our shoulder to make it as smooth as possible. So we went for the Aria Alexa, which at the beginning everyone thought, you guys are crazy and nuts. <laughs> but that was the only way because, yeah, you lose a lot of moments, of course. You have to change lenses and stuff. But then it's it's all about certain decisions. So we decided to use 40-year-old lenses, size lenses that are not as crisp and a little... They're almost, you know, the mistakes are kind of kind of interesting. And so all these things that look quite normal now are way ahead in research, you know, decisions that you have to make which are important. And, of course, to make it a cinematic experience, you have to do those decisions even more precise, I feel like. This is your whole construct of the film. You wanted to shoot it in a way that some people thought was kind of crazy for a documentary using these very specific, you know, serious f- cameras that you're referring to. But you've also got uh, some really interesting, uh, like, constructed sequences. And by that, I mean you've actually directed what, what I would interpret is you're di- actually directing these subjects at times. And I'd love to know how that worked, how you did that, or, and maybe I'm assuming wrong, but how you did that with your subjects and um, how, f- how you kind of knew how far to take, take that element. In a documentary, it's not common to have – you know, uh, a couple sequences I can refer to are the one where Dave is spelling out, I need 7,000 with the bottles and you do this beautiful crane shot, you kind of come up. And then there's the montage of all the ping pong balls where you're matching these things, the worlds together. Um, Am I right in assuming that those were highly directed and constructed? And if so, or, you know, if not, like, just talk about them and relating to doing that with the subjects. Well, here's the thing. I really hope that the film is not going to get you know, talk down to, oh, it's just a formal and camera technical piece Mm. because that was definitely not the aim. The aim is that the content, the people are still the most important. But I, of course, because there, they might be people in our eyes first as uh, as being a little bit like in a, in a way homeless, but not necessarily just in a social social way homeless. Because I mean, April is also looking for a new home, but I still wanted to give give them the the best possible picture that I can offer them because they all have such beautiful faces. They're all such beautiful humans, no matter what what happened in their past or where they are right now. So that's a very important thing to me that uh, the content still decides how I want to shoot them, and 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 also the contents also tells me as a director who I'm picking because all the the people I picked in research there in the film now, I didn't cut out anyone in editing or something. And then, yeah, I would say, I mean, directing, you know, as soon as you put up a camera, that's, that's my personal view. That's my subjective view. And I, I kind of try to make that very clear and honest to the audience by, for example, a scene with the ping pong balls, where I also try to play with your senses where sometimes you see the ball and you, then you don't see a ball but you still hear it and stuff i'm kind of making aware that you're still there and that you're also accepting what you see and that it's my view on things and i would say at that point somebody maybe loves the film or likes it even better and somebody else is like okay this is this is not my cup of cake anymore so it's almost like offering a contract but the thing is why i have no absolutely no problem to do certain things because for me, it's still the most classical documentary that I've ever done, um, is because I'm still guided by them, by their ideas, meaning the ping pong scene, or also, and let's take the example of if I need 7,000. The way that happens is I'm on research with Dave, then I see that he 
has put out some bottles there because nobody is around there, but I also know he's not a drinker there. So he had to collect those bottles, put them up there, and he puts them up in a certain way. But then I keep that, and then I go back for shooting, and then I would ask him, hey, Dave, what, what is this? And then he would tell me, and I would film that, how he explains me, hey, look, I'm putting up those bottles because I think with $7,000, I could you know, go back onto a certain certain life that I might admire or or would be different and then of course because it's already laid out i do ask him hey do you mind if you can show me this again how you did this so it's kind of a a, not not a reenactment but a replacement that he does again but based on his idea but i have to catch it somehow with my with my friends and with my camera so that's one way to do it i would never tell them to say certain things. So all the dialogue comes straight from them. Even the even for example the mirror poem that Cindy writes with lipstick on their on their mirror. Mm-hmm. The way we filmed it, a lot of people think, oh, this is totally made up. But no, it's it's actually really there. And I've never heard that poem before because it's an old poem from an American author. It's called The Man in the Glass. It's from 1856 or something. And she picked it up and she found it so significant for herself and then she changed it a little bit and she wrote it with her lipstick on the mirror but of course then the way how i filmed that that's my decision and and for me that's just a normal way of 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 doing a an exciting storytelling but for some people it might be not the same but but i'm really i'm guided by the people i would say 80 percent they guide me completely and they tell me where to go and I can only lead conversations or I mean the the whole war stories I never knew that before in research I only figured that out while we were shooting and then 20% is based on their ideas but where I kind of show my face as a filmmaker a little more yeah and well Nicholson that's exactly what I love about this movie is that it is so clearly made by someone with a cinematic vision and you kind of talked uh, earlier here uh about how like you had seen documentaries in your past where you're like, why isn't this just a radio play or on TV? And I, I, I am so in agreement with you. I, f- I find a lot of documentaries don't belong in the movie theaters these days. You know, they're just as good on the radio or a podcast or that story can play better on TV. But that, that uh, everything you're talking about is, is what excites me about this movie is that it is a movie. It's a, it's a, it's for the cinema and that's, that's very exciting. And um, branching off of that, uh, another area where that really comes to life in Above and Below is I, I just need to commend you and your sound department because the sound design in this movie, and you've, you hinted at that with the ping pong balls, the way you play with sound, even if the image isn't matching up with it. I love that. But also there's just there's just an explosion of creativity with the sound design in the scoring of this movie. Um, can you just talk about like conceptually how that was just 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 the idea for that and executing that? Yeah, I have very good guys that work in that sound department. I have one guy who was doing his studies more. It's called the Electronic Studio Basel, which was way more into they're kind of almost engineers and experimenting with like electronical sounds and he did the sound design and he he does a lot of more for theaters and operas and stuff like that. Mm. And then the guy who was on set actually who caught the sound of the boom operator, he does mostly fiction actually he just did the um which u.s hollywood series was just shot in berlin home oh, homeland it? homeland yeah he just was a sound operator on homeland so he comes from the fiction part and he works very well with the cameraman so 
when the cameraman has a 25 millimeter or 35 millimeter lens on, then he knows exactly where his frame is. So that's very important. Then third of all, because how I told you before, I pushed every department. I told him very clearly, hey, man, we're going to have a, a good camera and we want to experiment. So you might have to do the same or similar stuff in sound. So what we did is he and his teacher, they built their own, we called it 5.1 spider, <laughs> where they had like um, microphones that they built up on a tripod to all kind of directions. So during we were shooting sometimes, we would put it somewhere in the back, like even sometimes half a mile away, like really far away or even closer to kind of catch surrounding, um, not noises, but surrounding atmospheric stuff that you kind of don't really hear, but it's still there. It sounds weird now, but it's a lot. There's a lot of stuff in the movie that works um, not only with a subwoofer, but works in your subconsciousness, like sounds that you don't see or you don't really hear on the first sight but then when i put point them out then you would clear very very much more so yes we did spend a lot of um time in sound mixing and sound designing even though the the sound we got from set was very clear and already quite good even though we had a lot of problems especially in las vegas where you're under the channels and we had like a european system so we called a lot of police um, reports <laughs> through that so there, which was on one side quite good because we were shooting all the time illegal and I also got arrested uh, so oh, it was man. kind of good to kind of listen to that but then on the other side of course it was disturbing for our sound so we had to change that and the batteries were very fast dead because it was cold and wet sometimes and so lots of troubles but I think we managed to kind of come up with with uh, and I mean, if you would see the the forty hours raw footage and hear the raw footage, all those forty hours are even without sound design, you can easily listen to them. It's it's good quality and and I think it's also because you know I don't shoot that much. You know, even if you're on set sixteen hours a day, um, first of all, the the Arri Alexa four years ago was almost like handling a thirty five millimeter camera, which means you had to change the cards every eight minutes or so. You had to change lenses whenever you wanted to do a new shot. So you kind of lose moments. But then on the other side, when you're shooting, the energy is so high in the crew. Um, that's very good. Then, then you can catch other moments that are very exclusive and very, very nice and very good for the storytelling. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's just proof to me that the more movies I, I watch, the older I get, I realize I used to think it was all about imagery. And I, I truly believe that sound is like the key thing to create a, a very immersive, experiential, cinematic experience. And I think you understand that as well. It's definitely at least 50, if not 52% of the whole film. <laughs> so, so and, and I didn't even talk yet about the music because for mm. me, music is always... Uh, always been almost another hero or another protagonist in, in my films because I just like it and also with those guys Paradox Paradise a crew from Berlin three like really legit jazz musicians that went into film composing now I work with them like really hard from the beginning on meaning after research I came back with just still images and sounds that I just recorded because I never come back with video just sounds and images and based on that and for example, telling them, yeah, a car that drives over a manhole should be our heartbeat. Mm -hmm. And they would build original sounds that I took in research or on, on shooting. They would put that into the soundtrack. And that's something that was really important to me. So we, even when we started shooting, we already had a couple, like maybe 10, 10 songs or tracks that maybe now are three or four still in the film, just a little bit different. But, you know, 
to go on set with a certain soundtrack already is very good for the mood and for for everyone to kind of get into the whole process yeah you had referred earlier that um the sense of creating uh uh, a familial bond with these subjects, the, the, these characters of your movie, the people that you spent this time with, as you as you talked about, you you referred to it as potentially dangerous. And I've also heard you talk about you know feeling like you might have been really naive when you made this movie, and you would have done things differently. Um, can you can you talk about that? How would it be dangerous uh, to do what you did? Well, I would never do research in the flood channels again, all on by my own. It was just not possible differently because I was just there all my by, by myself but now I after thinking about it you know it's maybe it was also a little bit adrenaline and I had to do it you know but I mean not because people are dangerous animals and they're gonna kill you but the, I, I got into certain dangerous situations and it, it was just better to have someone always on the side to kind of rely on so that's one thing on the other side with um, meaning becoming a family member can become dangerous I didn't really mean it on a necessarily even though in one case yes on a physical way but it's dangerous emotionally you get like very attached to those people but you do a very clear deal from the beginning on you're the filmmaker you know that in two and a half months you're going to leave again and because I was dealing with with uh with situations or people that that not necessarily have the same life like me, I could go back to Germany or Switzerland and edit in a room where I don't have to be afraid of my life every day. You know, I could just do whatever I I did, and so that's that makes me even more happy that on top of that the film came out and it changed the lives of us as filmmakers. It really changed the the lives of of the people, and I'm still in contact with them, and um, it's amazing what happened. You know, for example the because I had to get in touch with the daughter of Dave because of the Facebook scene for legal rights. She got in touch with her dad again, and then they saw the trailer, and then they came to New York for a screening, and so things like that. Or Rick and Cindy, who are now clean and live in Texas and went through rehab and have a completely different life now, and I visit them already once, and I'm going to see them again. So it's, it's very nice to see what little we could have even done but how it changed certain things and that's that's a very very positive aspect of this film that i never could have calculated with but that i'm super proud and very excited about yeah as you should be i mean it's proof right there that you, this film is more than just a technical exercise I, I you kind of noted that as maybe a concern and there you go man like this movie does what good movies should or good docs should do is give you empathy for people and i think you i think you really nailed that um I, I, last thing I'd love to know, Nicholas. I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but like, what anything, any anything next, uh, any film projects next that you're like that you have lined up that you want to do, or anything concrete, any deals that you're trying to work on, anything. Thank you for asking, and it's always a, a tough question right now because, I mean, I was working pretty hard for this film, like four years, like really twenty four seven. That's my life. It, it it also somehow for us all, and especially for me, it became from a film to almost like a life project or a life experience. Mm-hmm. And um, so I'm still kind of in this whole above and below wave, especially now with the theatrical releases and stuff. So I'm still kind of trying to to somehow enjoy that but also write it out and kind of come to a point and in the meantime through the festival tour now which was over a year I did start uh, meeting of course a lot of people and researching new projects and we have I do have one one project that starts 
like heavily i would say in summer um that plays in europe in uh, ireland and tibet hopefully uh and that's based on an, an austrian author's book and we're working on that slowly but but that's one of the things that i'm doing and then i have a documentary in switzerland that is more um traditionally from the content but don't worry it will be um <laughs> Um, I, I have some crazy ideas in my mind. And in the U.S., yeah, I would love to work here again. I mean, I, I really, since my year in San Francisco, and then after that, I was also a year in, in Brooklyn for an artist in residency. I, I fell in love with a lot of things, and I, I got attracted and distracted. And also, you know, this kind of magnetic field that you need as a filmmaker, I found that there are a lot here. So, yes, I have also uh, a small thing coming up here. But I'm still getting used to the system because the, the American system of producing a film and getting a film done is very different than the European one where you mostly work with cultural funds. So it takes me a, a couple steps more and I don't want to rush myself because as you know now, um, I take my projects quite serious and I hope to create another uh, experience like that. So uh, it takes a while to do that. Well, well, Nicholas, we're, I'm pulling for you, man. I can't wait to see whatever comes next. If nothing else, I'm thankful that this movie got made above and below, and I'm really happy for the success you had with it. Well, thank you very much. Well, man, you got to believe there's something more than just this. Neep, sheep, nick, knock, ip, nick, noop. Sounds like French. <laughs>